my name is Barry. I am one of the elders at Cornerstone, an occasional preacher. Sometimes I, I get to, to share the word, and I'm excited to do that today. Um, I'm really excited to be among you today. Is this extra loud? Is there reverberation? Does it sound good? Gene, sound good? Okay. Um, really excited to be here with family today to just um, talk about uh, Jesus, because that's what we do, and it's great. Um, so as I said, I'm, I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone, and for those of you that know me, um, you know that I had a prior career. I currently practice law. I had a prior career in the military, and I discovered, I love to talk about it, and I'm going to probably have three army stories today, but I, uh, I discovered about 22 years ago that I have this freakish talent, and how many of you have like a weird talent that no one really knows about? Yeah. It's, it's a little odd. My freakish talent is one that um, I, I don't want to shock anybody, but it's just not really suitable for uh, polite society because I discovered it in the Army. Um, I have an uncanny ability to throw grenades. I discovered it at basic training. Um, we, we were about a month and a half into training, and we were at the grenade range. And in the Army, the grenade range consists of about 10 different stations. The hardest station in all of them is they have this trench that's dug into the ground, and it's about the width of, of a human's uh, shoulders, so, you know, about two feet or whatever. And, it, and, it's, and it's stretched across the ground, and they bring up a soldier, and the soldier's supposed to take, it's a training grenade, you don't do it with a live one, but a training grenade, and that soldier's supposed to crawl, low crawl, up to a point where they are about 15 to 20 meters. And if you're first time here, I do this occasionally. I like to use the whole stage when I teach. But they, they give you a grenade, and about 15 to 20 meters in front of you is this trench. You can't see it. It's, it's just a, a slit trench in the ground that you can't see. And they take the trainee, and they have them sit here with a grenade in their hand. And you're supposed to, under your chest, pop up real quick, pop down. Because you don't want to get shot, right? So you're supposed to pop up real quick, pop down. See if you can identify the trench. You can't. Look again if you need to. And then slightly roll over to one side. Pull the pin on the grenade. Pop up real fast. Lob it and get back down. And in basic training, they really teach you to keep your head down like this, looking at the ground, which takes me down a rabbit trail. You know how the Army teaches you to react to a nuclear attack? True story. This is such a rabbit trail. But in the Army, they teach you if there's a nuclear attack, to as soon as you see the flash, to face it, get down behind your helmet. Because that's going to save you, apparently. <laughs> this is a position... This is a position that every private in the army is very familiar with, right here. So after you throw that grenade, you get back down, and you can't hear it because it's a training grenade. And I remember looking up at the drill sergeant that was there because I wondered how I did, and he looks at me and he just says, right in the hole. I spent 13 years total in the army, and about that 13 years, I think I did retraining on grenades about 10 times. 10 times, 10 out of 10. I would always get that grenade right in the trench. I have no idea how. It's just a freakish talent that I discovered in the Army. The reason I tell you that is because I remember vividly 
that day of basic training because we were at the grenade range. I discovered this freakish superpower that I have. And we, were, we had a break. It was, it was late summer. It was very hot. And we, were, we had a break, and we were sitting down. And I think I was probably eating an MRE or something, and my drill sergeant comes over to me. Drill Sergeant Vasquez. Whatever image you have of what a military drill sergeant looks like and acts like, that's Drill Sergeant Vasquez. Drill Sergeant Vasquez, I'm sitting, eating, he comes over, I stand up, he tells me to sit down, he sits down next to me, we start talking, and he's chatting with me, and he's telling me stories about his family, how he's got a daughter in Akron, Ohio, that he doesn't get to see very much. He knew I was from the Cleveland area, from Canton, Ohio, just down the road. And he's just talking to me, and he's telling me about his daughter and, and how he doesn't get to see her very much. And we're talking like equals. And he's giving me advice about my Army career, what, can, what, what I can expect. This is at the grenade range. Maybe it's because he saw that I was a Superman. I don't know. Probably not. But we're sitting having this conversation, and I never forget it because it was about 10 minutes, and it was just like person to person, man to man. And he asked me a question at the end, and I don't remember what the question was, but I remember my response, because he made sure I would never forget it. I said, yeah. And he said, yeah? Yeah, what, buddy? Yeah, pal? I'm not your friend. And he walked away. Now, I don't remember, because I blocked it out, if he made me push Fort Jackson away from myself 50 times for that little exchange. I assume he did. But that was an exchange that will always stay in my mind. Because we had this conversation, and his response was, Buddy, pal, I'm not your friend. And it's true. Drill Sergeant Vasquez was not my friend. He was never my friend. From day one until I graduated, he was never my friend. And if we saw each other today, if he would even remember who I was, we would not be friends. He was my drill sergeant, and I was his trainee. We've been um, talking for the last few weeks about this wonder of it all, of this nature of God. This God who serves as both our Lord, Master, as our teacher, as our Savior, and also as our friend. And I got the short straw, not really, I, I'm looking forward to it, but it, it feels like in a lot of ways the short straw of trying to teach what it means to have Jesus as a friend of mine. Because for me, friendship comes very difficult. I don't have a lot of friends. Those that I have are important to me. I'm abrasive. I can be moody. I can be unpredictable. I'm not a great friend all the time. I can be. I have friends, but it's not easy for me to make friends. Friendship is a really tough thing. And especially when we talk about like, Friends with God, well, that's been a place that has been very difficult for me to go to for a long time. And I know, based on the survey that Justin did of, of the body of Cornerstone, that of master, teacher, uh, savior, friend, I know that that seems to be true for all of us, at least the vast majority of us. That relating to Jesus as friend is always a difficult thing. And I think it's because we always feel... I do anyway, that at some point, as I'm relating to Jesus, as I'm relating to him, he's going to suddenly turn into master again. 
he's going to suddenly turn into drill sergeant. He's going to suddenly force me to remember that he's savior and I'm not your friend, right? Because this is the relationship that I'm used to, me and drill sergeant Vasquez, right? And so I think like for me, that's a big issue. I imagine for a lot of you, it's the same issue as well, because you know, when we talk about the wonder of it all, we, we talk about master and savior and teacher, it's, um, it makes a lot of sense to us because um, there's, there's sort of this hierarchy that we're comfortable with, right? Because master relates directly down to his servant. And teacher relates directly down to disciple. And savior relates directly down to sinner, Right? We are defined in these areas here, servant, disciple, sinner. We're defined as those things only because the other things exist, right? If there's no master, there's no servant. A servant doesn't just magically exist. There has to be somebody over. Same with a teacher and a disciple. You can't be a disciple if you're not learning from somebody. It's the teacher that determines that the disciple exists, right? Same with the savior and the sinner. We can be sinners all we want to. But unless there's a savior, there's never going to be that relationship. So that relationship flows top down. And it feels comfortable for us because we can relate to that. That makes sense, especially when we're talking about God. Especially when we're talking about the creator of the universe. When we're talking about the savior who bled and died for our sins and rose from the death, right? It makes sense. He can be up there. One of the things, I'm not a theologian, but the deepest theological knowledge that I have is that there's a God, I'm not him. (laughs) And that's comfortable because it gives him his place and it gives me my place. We have a place, right? It's a place that makes sense. Now I understand that in the course of this, there is relationship that goes up as well. But for the purpose of comparing this with looking at Jesus as a friend, um, the, the primary point here is that with master, teacher, and savior, that arrow goes down. And I'm more than comfortable letting that arrow go down. He can be master and I will serve, right? He can be savior and I will accept, as Justin said a a couple of weeks ago, I will accept that bleeding grace. Now, maybe that's hard at times to accept that bleeding grace, but I'll accept it. Because that's a a relationship that makes sense to me. And teacher, yeah, he, he can teach me all of this stuff because the richness of everything that's in here and the richness of everything that Jesus taught can't fill a book. I think that's what the book of John says, right? If, if you were to say everything that Jesus spoke and taught in his life while he was here, it could not fill libraries. There would still be overflowing. It would, it would still be more. So yeah, he can teach me and I can sit and I can learn as his disciple. But then we talk about friend. The thing about friend is that that relationship goes, whoa, wrong one. Again, that relationship goes equally left and right. Friends exist because of other friends, right? But there's not another title. Like if I'm your friend, if I'm Gene's friend, what is Gene called? Friend, (laughs) right? And Terry is friend, and I am Terry's friend. We have the same name. It's equal. That relationship goes left and right. And so it's hard for me when I know that there's that master, that savior, that teacher who's sitting next to me talking, it's hard for me to think that this is a real relationship because I can't find myself equal with God. 
right? I, I can't find myself as saying that he and I are on the same plane in this relationship. And I assume that a lot of you feel the same way. And that's why we're spending two weeks on this. Justin taught last week on this, and, and, and I actually listened to a sermon. I was teaching the kids last week, um, but I listened to a sermon this week, and I thought, well, I don't have anything more to say to this. <laughs> he, he handled it really well. Like, if you haven't listened to Justin's sermon on being a friend of God, go back and listen to it, because it really sets the table really well. I mean, today, I'm going to try to tell you what I have encountered with Jesus in the course of this friendship and in, and in studying and preparing, and to augment that. Um, but he laid the groundwork really well, and I invite everyone to go back and listen to that as well. But what I think Justin did really tremendously well was talk about that tension, like that tension of relating to somebody that is both master, servant, and teacher, but also calls himself friend. And Justin introduced to us two concepts. And, 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 and our thinking for this teaching is, in order to identify what makes somebody a friend, for instance, in this case, we need to identify what are those sort of um, characteristics that separate friend from everything else, that without this characteristic, um, you couldn't be called a friend. And Justin talked about compassion, and he talked about influence. Go back and listen to it. And Justin said that I was going to share with you a third characteristic, and that's true, but I sort of made Justin a liar because I'm going to share with you a fourth one as well. So there's two other characteristics that I want to talk with you all and share with you in my experience. It's going to be kind of testimonial, maybe not as theologically deep, but very testimonial because it's the story of how I believe Jesus wants to relate to us as friend as well so that maybe we can elevate that, that survey number just a little higher and that we can see him as friend as well, just as easily as we see the other things. Um, our, our text today is going to be out of primarily two places, John 15 and Matthew 16. So if you have your Bible, um, I invite you to turn. I think we'll, we'll start with Matthew 16. But most of our um, study today is going to be out of these two chapters. Because these two chapters, I think, are excellent places where Jesus, in his own words, explains what it means for us to be friends of his and for him to be friends with us. Okay? Um, so that's where we're going to go today. We're going to add two more. So in addition to compassion and influence, we're going to add two more characteristics that define that friendship relationship between Jesus and us so that we can sort of step away from that posture of expecting the drill sergeant to hammer us all the time, even when he feels like a friend, but to embrace him fully as friend and to know that he embraces us fully as friend as well. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you so much for... Um, for, this, for this wonder that you've done in creating a family and creating a family of people that can call each other friends and for creating a family that's born out of the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus and our teacher and that we can call him master, that we can call you master, that we can learn from our teacher, that we can receive the grace of his blood and your sacrifice of your son and that we can learn also equally what it means to call Jesus as our friend and to be known by you as a friend as well. Thank you for this morning. We dedicate this time to you. We bless these words. We pray that you would speak uh, more clearly than anything else, Lord, that your spirit would be the thing that guides our hearts today. In your name we pray, amen. So one of the things in, um, in, in Scripture that has always stood out to me was this concept in Proverbs 18 
where the writer Solomon said that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, right? And as I was praying, I was thinking about that. We call ourselves a family, and we know that we're in family relationship with God, but in Proverbs it said there's a friend that stands closer to a brother. And the deep desire of our, of our exploring of these passages is that we could all know. Because who doesn't want to know a friend that sticks closer to you than a brother? Our deep desire is that we have a way to relate to God as that friend that sticks closer to the brother. Because I believe that that's what Solomon was talking about, even if Solomon at the time didn't know it. Another rabbit trail, sorry. Matthew 16. This is one of my favorite um, passages in the Bible. Now when Jesus, this is verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done." Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. Consider, if you will, the closest friends you've ever had in your life. Think about that for just a few minutes. Who are the closest friends that you've had in your life? Those that stick closer than brothers. Because we've all had at least one, I hope. And probably more. But consider, if you will, those friends in your life that have stood closer to you than a brother. And think about the context of those friendships. In Matthew 18, we have this depiction, 16, sorry, of Jesus with his friends, his literal friends. He's sitting with the 12 in in Caesarea Philippi. He's with his friends in an express context. That context is Jesus telling them the deepest realities, revealing the deepest truths about who they are and about what the future entails for them. And more importantly, in Matthew 16, what Jesus is doing is he's providing to his friends an intimate look at what he is really about. Stuff that Jesus didn't share with other people 
This is stuff that Jesus only shared with his 12 closest friends. This Matthew 16, and specifically in verses 24 and on, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I submit that one of the things that separates friends from those other relationships is this thing that Jesus is spelling out to his friends at that time. And what that is is nothing less than a shared experience and commitment. See, up to this time, Jesus had been with his disciples. They had experienced his ministry. He had experienced their ministry. They had experienced life together. They had experienced trials together. They had experienced a lot of things together. And they shared a commitment. And Jesus is saying to his disciples that I am going to give my life. And if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my friend, they will do the same thing, right? This is shared commitment and shared experience that a master and a, and a servant don't need to have, right? The master just gives orders. You don't have to have a shared commitment. If I have a servant that doesn't do what he's supposed to do, I can fire him. If it's an employee, they can be fired. If they're not committed, then... They're no longer servant. We're no longer master-servant, right? I don't need shared commitment to be master. King George III didn't need obedience from the colonies to be King George III. He was always king, right? He didn't need loyalty. Loyalty would have been nice. And in fact, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Shared commitment and shared experiences, loyalty. I submit that this is one of the characteristics that designates and separates friendship from every other relationship that we have, especially our relationship with God. Because think about the Savior sinner. The sinner doesn't need loyalty to the Savior. The Savior will save. The sinner can accept it, but he doesn't need to be loyal to that Savior. The Savior is going to come and bleed and save us. He doesn't require our loyalty for him to be our Savior. And he doesn't require our loyalty to be our teacher. If you have a teacher now or ever had a teacher and you got an F, I got a D once. If you get a D or an F, does that make the teacher any less of a teacher simply because you were a bad student or I was a bad student? No. That teacher relationship to the student and disciple will remain all the time. But with friends, it's different. With friends, it's different. Without loyalty, I'm not a friend and Jim's not a friend. If we're not loyal, that friendship doesn't exist whatever. Neither one of us can call ourselves friends, right, without loyalty. Loyalty requires friendship. Think about those friends that you had in your life, the closest ones, those that were closer than a brother. And I will bet that you will find both shared experience and shared commitment to one another in that space. My second army story, I had another close friend that was a captain. I was a first lieutenant at the time. He was a captain, so he outranked me. We were at the captain's career course at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And Tom is a West Point graduate, the best of the best, 
and he outranked me, and we were in class together. But over the course of about five months, Tom and I developed this really genuine and really close friendship. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. Just like that drill sergeant, Tom could have easily decided that I'm a first lieutenant, he's a captain, he wants nothing to do with me, right? He could have easily taken that command structure and run with it. He's a West Point grad. I went through officer candidate school. There's a hierarchy here to the way things work. Tom could have easily done that, but we shared a commitment and a loyalty to each other and to something else. And what that was is that Tom and I were both dedicated specifically to being the best officers we could be. And when he saw that commitment from me and I saw that commitment from him, I said, this is a guy I can be loyal to. And Tom said, this is a guy that I can be loyal to. And that loyalty extended to my home. Tom would come to my house. He would have dinner with Olivia. He would hold Isaac and play trains with him. Isaac was like a year old. This captain, this West Point graduate, this guy that had everything going for him, at least in juxtaposition to me, where friendship would not otherwise exist, decided because of a shared commitment that we would be friends. And Tom and I to this day are friends because of that commitment. He broke bread with me. I broke bread with him. He spent time with my family. I met his wife as soon as they got married. And and they came and visited our home a few years ago. Friendship exists because of shared commitment and loyalty. Now here's the problem, right? I'm not judging anyone, but I can tell by some posture that loyalty is a problem. Is loyalty a problem for anybody here? Is Is loyalty a problem? Loyalty is a problem, right? Loyalty is a problem because what we understand loyalty to be always ends up biting us, doesn't it? Has anyone ever been blindly loyal to a friend that ended up hurting them? Has anyone ever been betrayed by a friend because of your loyalty? Right? Here's something that's true, Cornerstone. Our concepts of friendship are completely corrupted. And our concepts of loyalty are entirely corrupted. So I'll just throw that out there for you. And that must hurt to know that loyalty, at least as we experience it, is always going to end up with us being hurt or our other friends being hurt but our concepts of friendship and loyalty are completely corrupted because we are corrupted. And so when Jesus says that I want to be your friend, he's calling us to do something that we don't naturally do, that doesn't naturally come easy to us because we are well attuned to experiencing the result of unbridled loyalty. But yet Jesus calls us to unbridled loyalty. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 15. And this is where it really stuck me. Because if you look at anything that Jesus said about friendship, it's here in John 15. And it's in, we'll start at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You you are my friends, If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his 
Master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you love one another. You are my friends if, if you do what I command. How many of you, if a friend came up to you and said, you're my friend if you do this, would question the veracity of that friendship? How many of you have done that? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have done that? When a friend says to you, you're only my friend if you do X, Y, and Z, I know what my response is. Well, we're not friends. Because <laughs> friends don't treat friends that way. Listen, Cornerstone, I have wrestled with this text. I have tried to find another way to read it. <laughs> I confess my sin of wanting to twist this scripture. To find a reason why Jesus didn't mean what he clearly says in this verse. But Jesus clearly says, you are my friends if you keep my commandments. And so then here I am again, man, this guy's not my friend. He's about to just, he's just about to blow up on me, right? Because how many times do I fail to keep his commandments? How many times am I just private nom to drill Sergeant Jesus, right? And how many times can Jesus possibly accept the fact that I can't hit the target with that grenade until he's no longer my friend? Because he put conditions on this, right? Jesus put conditions on his friendship. Maybe I need to do this. Listen, Cornerstone, Jesus put conditions on his friendship. What do we do with that? It doesn't feel like a friend, right? But it's right there in the text. You are my friends if you keep my commandments. In the same way that our concept of friendship is corrupt because we're corrupt, we can rest easy, though, in the fact and the knowledge that Jesus' concept of friendship is not corrupt because he is not corrupt. See, when we relate to our carnal friends, we always risk that betrayal. We always risk that wounding. Because no matter what, no matter what, Paul and I, in our friendship, are going to be carnal We can't get away from it. I can't get away from it. But when Jesus says to me, I am your friend, he is speaking from a pure spiritual place. And when Jesus says, you're my friend if you keep my commandments, he's saying something that is absolutely true. He will always be your friend. Because remember that friendship goes left and right, one to the other. And what he's saying is, you are my friend if you keep my commandments, there's a hidden sort of implied thing in there that I'm always ready to be your friend. I am never going to betray you. I am never going to let you down. I am never going to do something that compromises you because I am the perfect friend. If, Cornerstone, as you think about Jesus as your friend and you go to that place of sort of self-loathing and say, he can't be my friend because I'm not a very good friend, Yep, it's true. It's part of it. You can't be a good friend 
but he is the perfect friend. So if you doubt yourself and you say, we can't be friends because I'm not a good friend, I'm going to invite you to just sit with that grenade for a while because maybe it's true. Maybe it's absolutely true. There's an old saying that says, if you want to have a friend, be a friend. Jesus in Matthew 16 and in John 15 is saying the exact same thing. If you want to be my friend, be about what I am about. Because at the end of the day, that's exactly what loyalty is. It's just a statement that says, be about the things that I am about. And Jesus, the perfect friend, you will never have a better friend. The perfect friend says, be about the things that I am about. Be loyal to me and you will be called my friend. I'm always ready to be yours. Be about the thing that I'm about and you will be my friend as well. Hard word. (laughs) There's that grenade blast, right? Told you I was good at chucking grenades. There's a salve to this though. Because that is a harsh word, right? It is really hard to come to grips with the fact that I'm never going to perform perfectly well. Well, Jesus didn't say perform perfectly well. He said, keep my commandments. And when you fail to keep my commandments, I think Jesus is saying, keep my commandments. And when you fail to keep those commandments, what does Jesus say? Keep my commandments. What did he do with Peter? Peter, three times, did what? Denied even knowing Jesus. Mike, if I denied even knowing you in a place where you were in trouble, would you think I'm your friend? You don't have to answer. You can if you want. I would assume Mike would say no. (laughs) That's not much of a friend, right? Mike's going through trouble, and somebody says, aren't you Mike's friend? And I, no, I'm not. I'm not that guy's friend. You that YWAM guy? No, no. I'm not his friend. True, I'm not. In that place, I'm not. I think when Peter said, I never knew him, he's telling the truth. Never knew him. Even though Jesus said in Matthew 16, I'm going to die. And Peter said, far be it. That's never going to happen. I'm going to stand by you to the very end. (laughs) And then he goes to die. And Peter says, I never knew him. I think Peter was telling the truth. I never knew him. I never knew him. And think about the despair of that place. But what did Jesus do? After Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus found Peter. Peter three times said he didn't know him. Three times, Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you. Feed my sheep. And a second time he said, Peter, do you love me? What do you think Jesus was thinking about? He was thinking about the three times he said he didn't, right? But Jesus offers this friendship. He is loyal and faithful all the time. All the time. And he invites us to that place of loyalty and shared commitment and experience with him where we can call ourselves his friend as well. This week, I had an experience where I actually, I'm 44, will be 45 at the end of the month. And the first time in 44 years, I think, I experienced Jesus as friend. Because all my life, I've wrestled with this idea of Jesus saying, take up your cross and give up your life for my sake. I I don't know that I can do that. Last week, Beth Santana, where's Beth? You here? Beth, 
gave this tremendous testimony. And she spoke to that same thing. Like, I know he's calling me to suffer for his sake. And I don't want to do it. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Beth, but that's what I heard. I'm not ready. That's me. That's me at every turn. I don't want to do this thing, Jesus. I don't want to give up my life. I don't want to put myself at risk for this. For you, for your kingdom, but I so desperately want you to be my friend and I want to be called your friend. Well, this week I had an opportunity to step out and do something and to take up, you know, it's irrelevant what it was, but I suffered as a result of it. I was trying to be Jesus's friend and I suffered as a result of it. And this week, as I'm listening to Justin's sermon in my car, as I'm driving, I'm breaking down and I have to stop the car. (laughs) Because for the first time ever, I experienced Jesus as my friend because of something that happened. And I'll tell you how later. But I experienced Jesus as my friend because maybe for the first time in my life, I said, I'm going to be about what you're about. I'm going to take up this cross and I'm going to suffer. And yeah, I didn't get my hands nailed. I didn't get my feet nailed. I didn't get my side pierced by a spear. It was minor on the, on the scheme of things in the universe, in the world. It's a small thing. But I took a stand and I said, I'm going to be what you're about. And I suffered. <laughs> and I can say that he's my friend because of what happened after that. If you want to be a friend, if you want to have friends, be a friend. If you want to be known as a friend of Jesus, be about those things that Jesus is about. And that's the hard word. Easier word. Maybe easier. I don't know. There's another characteristic that, that I think defines our friendship with God and with Jesus. And that's specifically, go back to Matthew 16. And it's the first part of Matthew 16, where he's having this conversation with Peter. Peter, by all accounts, is probably Jesus' closest friend. Likely his closest friend. And he has this conversation with, with, with Peter, and he says... To, to all of the disciples, who does the world say that I am? And they offer some solutions. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, probably his best friend, irrespective of what Peter does in the future, his best friend says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. You are the one that the prophets spoke of. And Jesus then turns that around and says to Peter, and I tell you, you are my rock. And upon you, I will build my church. And all of this cool stuff that I do from now until 2,000 years in the future is going to be because of you, my friend. Sorry, it's been that kind of week. The cool thing about friends is that they share affection. And the cool thing about friends that know Jesus And being friends with Jesus is that those friends in their affection name each other. In affection, they name each other. And they're able to say to each other, this is who I know you are. And in that affection, that friend can say back, and I know who you are too. And that's nothing less than intimacy, right? Friendship requires intimacy. Master and servant don't require intimacy. Teacher and student, disciple, intimacy is not required for that relationship to exist. Savior, sinner, don't need intimacy. Just accept the bleeding grace. But with friends, 
There's intimacy. There's this deep knowledge of one another. There's this deep knowledge that one friend can say to the other friend, I know who you are, and you know who I am, and because of our loyalty to each other, we're going to be these things together, and we're going to change the world. And that's exactly what happened as a result of Matthew 16. Jesus and Peter changed the world because of that conversation. Even though Peter still denies him three times. Even though, even though, even though, they changed the world because of a deep intimacy and affection that they had for one another. And that's what Jesus offers to each and every single one of us. An intimacy and an affection. Understand this. Jesus experienced everything that you have experienced with his friends that you've experienced with your friends. He experienced betrayal. He experienced denial. He was sold to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver by a friend. By people that he broke bread with. From people that he reclined at the table with. To people that he named and received name from. He knew everything that we experienced with our friendships. But he's the perfect friend. And he offers perfect intimacy and perfect affection for those that want to be called his friend. If we're willing to keep his commandments, if we're willing to be about what he is about, he offers that deep affection. He offers his blood to everyone. He offers his blood to everyone. He offers his affection to his friends. And he offers his intimacy to them. And so that invitation is for each of us to accept that intimacy I think one of the biggest problems that we have in accepting the friendship of Jesus relates to this intimacy. And this isn't like some profound word. The fact of the matter is he's not here, right? <laughs> so it's hard to feel that physical intimacy. I'm going to tell a third army story in the context of a friend. Ben Bernard, will you come up? He's like, army story. <laughs> So I want you to meet my friend, Ben. This is my friend, Ben. You cannot have a better friend in this world than Ben Bernard. And for those of you that know Ben and call him a friend, know what I'm talking about, right? Nod, cheer, wave, yeah. You can't have a better friend than Ben Bernard. Ben is, we're from different generations, different generations. I served in the Army. Ben is a Navy brat. Family's Navy. Family Navy, yeah. Family's Navy. Um, I grew up a pretty straight-laced kid. How about you? Wild child. <laughs> One day, Ben got tickets to a football game, and he invited me to go to this football game with him. It was the Army-Navy football game. 2016, Army-Navy. We sat on the Navy side. Yeah, yeah. 14 years, 14 years, Navy beat Army consecutively. 14 years. This is the 15th game. Ben gets me tickets. Surf and turf in a tent outside ahead of that. We go into the stadium. We share an experience and a commitment to rooting for Army. Well, maybe not. We shared an experience, and we shared this time. And that day... 
was one of the best days that I will ever remember. I will never forget this. And at the end of the game, Army won. Army won. Army won. Ben, my friend Ben, you can't have a better friend than my friend Ben. Ben is hugging me, celebrating with me as I'm hugging like the random army people that are in the stands too. And the best thing, the best thing, Ben says, what did you say? What did you tell me? Game's over. Oh, I said, we're going on the field. We're going on the field. Now, I told you I'm a pretty straight-laced guy. That's not something that I would normally do. But Ben's like, we're going on the field. I said, are we doing this? Ben's like, we're doing this. And so I decided in that moment to be about what Ben was about. And we charged the field. And we're having a party. Army guy, Navy buddy. Having a party on the field in Baltimore, celebrating something that was beautiful. Right? Now, all of that to, to preface, we're going to come back. My point was that um, we have a hard time relating to Jesus' friend because Jesus is not fit. I cannot put my arm around Jesus, right? Or can I? <laughs> ben and I come from different worlds and different backgrounds, but we find ourselves in one place. Ben, do you love me? No doubt. Why? Uh... Well, there's many reasons. I mean, you're you're a, a loyal friend. Uh, you're uh, a confidant. Um, you accept me as I am, um, and uh, we generally just have fun being around each and what, other. And what brought us together? Well, I, I I think about this a lot with a lot of my friends here uh, at, at Cornerstone and other other churches. Uh, I would say that I wouldn't know a lot of you if it wouldn't be for Jesus. Amen. I didn't bring Ben up here to, to talk nicely about me, but thank you. That's cool. <laughs> That's the point, right? Ben and I have no reason to be friends together. We come from different worlds, different backgrounds. We have different stories. But we are friends because Jesus was Ben's friend and Jesus was my friend. And together we are friends together. Yeah. And so that... This concept that I can't relate to Jesus' friend because he's not physically here is a lie. I would get down and throw another grenade. But Jesus is right here <laughs> when I need Jesus. Thanks, Ben. Give, give Ben a hand. This week, when I experienced Jesus' friend in the midst of like some really tough stuff, I experienced him just like that. Because Matt called me and Matt prayed with me. And Justin preached a sermon the Sunday before, and I listened to it. And we had an elders meeting Thursday night where together the elders gathered and they listened. And Mike and Laura and Dennis and Matt and Justin, they heard my story. They spoke into it. They named me and they prayed for me. Jesus was physically in those places with me because he inhabits the body of Christ. And if he calls you friend, and finds you to be a friend, and finds me to be a friend, then we are friends together. And we experience that deep intimacy and real, actual, physical connection and affection from Jesus. What a beautiful picture, right? I mean, how beautiful is that? 
that when Jesus called his people friends and said, this is how you're my friend, he knew that the church he was going to build on the back of his best friend would be the physical impartation and incarnation of friendship to the world if they would just receive his bleeding grace and accept his friendship. Church, we are the embodiment of Jesus Christ. And you, my friends at Cornerstone, are the embodiment of Christ's affection to me. And I hope to be the embodiment of Christ's affection to you so that I can name you and you can name me. One thing I forgot to mention, Ben, on that field, every person we ran up to said, I want you to meet my buddy, Captain Nom. I haven't been a captain in years. But Ben named me, and I said, this is my buddy. This is my buddy. This is my buddy, Ben. He's a great man. This is my buddy, Barry, Captain Nom. We can name each other, and we can, more importantly, introduce each other to Jesus. So in that place where each one of us is struggling, hurting, feeling the absence of friends, find that friend who knows Jesus to be Jesus to you. And when you see a friend that's hurting and not having Jesus physically present, you can be that and you can name them. To a hurt and sick and dying world, we have the charge to also introduce Jesus to those that he would deeply desire to call friends. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is friendship with Jesus in a nutshell. Friendship with Jesus in a nutshell. Affection, intimacy, shared commitment, loyalty, compassion, influence. That's what friends of Jesus are because that's what Jesus embodies and models for us. And that takes us to a really cool transition because here at Cornerstone, Every week, we partake of the bread and the cup. One of the things in intimacy that friends do is they share meals. They break bread together. (laughs) Jesus, God broke bread with his children through the bread of his own son, Jesus. And he broke his body. And he broke that bread. And Hebrews talks about, in the context of friendship with God, this mystery. I didn't mark it. It's here. Thomas. The thing about Jesus that we need to remember is that he experienced everything that we've experienced. He knows everything about our lives that we know. He became like us in every way, except one, so that we could call him friends. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will name you. And again, I will put my trust in you. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. 
and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so we break bread. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our perfect brother, who experienced everything and became like us in every way except one. And that is he did not sin. He is not corrupted. He is the best friend you can have. Band, you can come up. Sorry. He is the best friend you can have. And that best friend that you have offered his blood and his body for each of us to partake. And now we celebrate that among friends. We are friends together because Jesus calls us friends and we break bread together. We commune together and we share in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in his body broken and his blood poured out for each of us that we could know him deeply in that intimate way, that we could find and claim true loyalty to the one who will always be loyal to us, the one who will never let us down. He offers this intimacy now. Jim and Matt are going to be serving the elements today. Um, at Cornerstone, if you're, if you're not familiar, we rip off a piece of the bread, we dip it into the juice, and we take and eat and receive a blessing from your friends, Jim and Matt. They are your friends. Laura, who's praying? Okay, Laura and Jason Brubaker are going to be standing over here by this, this piece of art. They are there to pray for you. They are there to pray for you. If anything in this context of Jesus as friend has spoken to you, they're here to pray for you in that way. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all. Maybe you don't know him as friend. Maybe you don't know him as master or teacher or savior, but you want to know him. Laura and Jason are friends of God. <laughs> They'll introduce you to him. Ask, ask them to do that. Um, so we're going to partake of the bread and the cup and receive prayer as friends of God. The table's open.